This Week in Retronauts, go east, young man. everyone and welcome to retronauts episode i want to say 87 or if you want to call it retronauts east episode one you can do that i'm jeremy Parrish, and this is the first episode of retronauts east which uh, is the new little splinter faction of the splinter cell of retronauts um, as part of our patreon funding we set a goal that said uh, you know if we can get to a certain point then we will go weekly and we will add some new uh, show concepts to the show to the to the uh, to the schedule, and one of them was a recording set in where I live, as opposed to me having to fly to San Francisco to record, which gets kind of expensive, and I can't do that like every week. So instead, we're recording here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I have some native video game experts on hand. So why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Ben Edwards. I'm a freelance journalist. And I've known Jeremy for a long time. We Quite used to work together. Yeah, you, you contributed to One Up back when yeah. I was there, uh, laboring under the, the the banner of Ziff Davis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh, you are now. I am. I still a journalist. I write for Fast Company, PC World, PC Mag, um, The Atlantic. Sometimes I focus on history of games and computers. And you have a personal site too, don't you? Yeah, vintagecomputing.com. Yeah. It's so a blog I've run out. since 2005. Uh, you used to do like what, the scan of the week? But yeah, then retro you scan that? of the week. Yeah, yeah. For 10 years, every Monday. <laughs> I guess in the age of Tumblr, there's not really much space for that. Yeah, yeah. It probably became obsolete about five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but you still you still post there quite a bit. Yeah, and I do. It's It's kicking up. A notch now because I did the Patreon thing too. Right. Yeah. You want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. You can promote yourself here. Why yeah, not? Patreon.com slash Benj Edwards. It's going to fund deep looks into video game and computer history. I'm going to try to uncover things no one's ever written about before. And then after that, I'll talk about them on RetroNuts. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Can you give us any hints about what you're writing about or do you want to maintain your specialness? I don't know. I totally understand like guarding that sort of thing yeah. because as soon as you say, oh, yeah, I want to write about this, then someone yeah, else everybody says, jumps oh, I should go do that first. The thing is also it gives people ideas and they don't even realize they get the ideas because they just read it or hear it somewhere and they're like, mm-hmm. oh, I should do this or that. But um, All right. You can keep it clandestine yeah. for now. Okay. That's fine. Uh, so we can all look forward to that. When do you think you'll, your first um, your first article from that will will hit? Um, right now, I am editing an interview with Ed Smith that I did last year, um, and he was the creator of the APF MP1000 console, which was a really obscure 1970s cartridge-based console. And he's, he's I don't know a, if I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was very notable because he's. One of the few African American um, video game pioneers in the industry. One of like two or three that I know of from that era. Right, and unfortunately, Jerry Lawson passed away a few years yeah. ago, so you can't really talk to him anymore. So, basically, everything that's known about him is out there, kind of like you yeah. know Satoru. You everything is based on my interview I did with him in two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like everything. So, and then Ben, what about yourself? 
Hey, so my name is Ben Elgin. Um, I'm not any kind of vintage expert like Bench here. My main qualification is that I'm as old as Jeremy, so I grew up with this stuff. Uh, I am a programmer, though. I've been doing programming uh, with a focus on computer graphics for a long time, went to grad school for that, um, so I may have some of that angle to contribute. And uh, yeah, just uh, I hadn't worked with a lot of these old systems as I was growing up, so hopefully we'll be able to uh, tell you something interesting about them. Yeah, and I think... Um the the first interaction I remember having with you was after I wrote a uh, like I, I I know I've seen your name around online before this but back when I wrote a retrospective on adventure for Atari twenty six hundred and yeah. apparently you worked with Warren Robinette and showed it yeah, to him and so, were like so what do you think about this right yeah so so this is basically a complete coincidence um, but I shared an office with Warren Robinette who who was at Atari and who was basically the sole programmer behind Adventure. Um, just because we were doing a little startup company and we had extra office space and we rented it to him uh, was basically how that happened. So he was working on some other educational software products, I think maybe with Broderbund, but I'm not sure um, at that time. Um, so yeah, and he, he really appreciated the interest in, uh, in his older work. That was the one where he had the uh, Easter egg mm-hmm. of uh, his name. If you could pick up a specific pixel with your little avatar and bring it to the right room, which was one of the first Easter eggs ever. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, and I've been following following your stuff, Jeremy, since, I don't know, GeoCities? <laughs> uh, a long time ago. I remember a Strider Splash page. That was... Yeah, back in the days of Splash pages. Frog. Before you had to just jump right in to, mm-hmm. to the websites. Yep. I yep. think that qualifies you to be here, sharing with <laughs> Warren Robinette. Yeah, yeah definitely. Didn't he do Rocky's Boots? That educational game that was <sighs> that sounds acclaimed. right. Yeah, he worked. Yeah. He worked through a series of different educational games. This is, as I said, the debut episode of Retronauts East, which we're just numbering, you know, like a normal Retronauts episode. So you'll have to please forgive any awkwardness or weirdness with this episode. We're still figuring out the recording situation. I don't have all the cables that I quite need in place. We're all in shock at what we look like in person (laughs) for the first time. that and we're we're trying out a, a recording space that may not be the right recording space. It's actually open. Like a cavern. Uh, what's that? Cavern. It's yeah. Cavern. So uh, you know when we do the colossal cave adventure episode, that'll be perfect. But um, <laughs> but for the moment, uh, the audio on this may be below par. So if that's the case, then we'll retool things for next time. So bear with us, but. Hopefully the conversation will be good enough that you won't mind. Well, we may hit Colossal Cave in this one at some point. Cause uh, Adventure is on here, yeah, but Colossal Cave, Cave isn't. Well, is it? No, it but, predates. Ad, but Advent came out of that same work. It did, it did. But we don't want to get too bogged down yeah. in details. <laughs> yeah. Right. So yeah, with that, why don't we move into this week's topic? So to kick off the, uh, the first episode of Retronauts East... Um, what I'd really like to do with this group and, you know, other people that I might bring in for recording, depending on, you know, expertise and everything 
is touch on topics that we don't really normally get to in the course of regular Retronauts because Bob and I tend to share a pretty much the same interest. There's some stuff he likes that I don't and vice versa, but it all tends to be kind of, you know, 8-bit, 16-bit Japanese console games, things like microcomputers and even American consoles we're pretty weak on. And people complain that we don't cover those topics. But then when we do cover the topics out of a sense of obligation, people also complain because we're not really experts on those. So we can't speak to them with, you know, the, the wisdom of experience. So my hope is that, you know, with, with Retronauts East, we can delve into other topics. You know, uh, I know Ben definitely, or Benj definitely has a lot of expertise on, on vintage 8-bit computers and things like that that I am just completely weak on. So we're kind of putting everything on your shoulders, I guess. Yeah, early American video games is my specialty. Right. So you can look forward to that. And with this one, we're going back to kind of... Uh, not the original video game system, but the original American computer uh, in a lot of ways, the Apple II. Uh, it, of course, Apple II wasn't the first American computer, but it was really in a lot of ways the breakout computer, the point at which the, the idea of computers as a consumer commodity, as, as an appliance, as something everyone could own and use and play on and also work on really took off. And uh, we were going to talk about a different computer uh, to start out with, but as I thought about it, I realized that, that in order to really talk about any other computers of that era, the late 70s, early 80s, I really think you have to lay down the basic here and, and start with Apple II because it was so important and so influential on everything that came after. And it had a it had an amazingly long life. It was uh, it debuted in 1977, and Apple supported it until 1993, by which point it was obviously incredibly obsolete, but it just had that much traction. It's like, you know, Game Boy or something, where there's just so many people that own it that they keep making games for it. We talked about the, the Nintendo Wii recently, and even though that's now about to go into its second successor, there were still Wii games coming out last year, 2016, so, you know, when a, when a system has a huge install base, especially with, you know, uh, a very sort of casual market that doesn't feel the need to upgrade immediately and go to the next best thing, uh, they tend to have a really long life and be supported for a long, long time. So that's definitely the case with Apple II. I, th- I think also an institutional market is part of that, just because the Apple II ended up in a lot of the computing labs and grade school labs and that sort of thing, and they're not going to be upgrading to the next yeah. great thing every that is true. year. I think that so that gave it the last 10 years of its life. Yeah. From 83 to 93. The, the the huge install base in schools around America. Steve Jobs made a huge push to to court the educational market uh, very early on and he got, you know, huge computer labs full of them around the country and around the world. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean that was a, a- a very smart strategy on his part. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the Apple II was relatively expensive um, compared to some other computers that came out a few years later, like the Commodore 64. Mm-hmm. But at the time, you know, it was it sold for like $1,200 at the base level, which is a lot in, a, in, in modern day money. But for a computer at that time, that was incredibly reasonable. I mean, you know, this was an era where a lot of people, if they wanted to do computing, would have to go to a university and use share time on a Vax or a mainframe or something. 
And to have your own computer in your own house or in your own classroom that was, you know, standalone device, you didn't have to share it, you didn't have to, you know, worry about computing time or anything like that. But that was a that was a pretty big revolution. So yeah, that made a big, big difference. Yeah, at, at the time, there were some sort of all-in-one computers that predated the Apple II from IBM and Wang and some other, but they all cost uh, like ten to fifteen thousand dollars. Right. So and that was like fifty fifty thousand dollars in inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I just did the numbers on a word processor that was sold for fifteen thousand and seventy-eight, and it's like fifty-three thousand dollars or something. Yeah. It was all-in-one, man. Crazy. So yeah, yeah. twelve hundred is a is a good deal. For that Very good deal. Got. Yeah, yeah. The bigger ones, households weren't going to have them, and schools weren't going to be able to afford those either. Yeah, unless you were some amazing private school. So to understand how the Apple II came into being, we have to talk a little bit about Apple itself and what came before the Apple II, because obviously it's the Apple II. There was something before that. Uh, so of course, Apple computer. You've probably heard of them. They uh, started out as kind of a garage band video game, or not video game, but computing company working out of a garage, like, you know, to fund their first product. Uh, Steve Jobs, one of the co-founders, one of the three co-founders, sold his van. Uh, I think Steve Wozniak, one of the other co-founders, sold his HP calculator. Uh-huh. So it was, it was one of those things where it was just like some really young dudes who had a great idea and decided to pursue it. And, you know, uh, had that, that sort of freedom and bohemian uh, nonchalance, I guess, to be able to actually make some sacrifices to pursue it. And clearly it worked out for them. There was one other founder, Ronald Wayne. Uh, in the notes I wrote down that he was the Stu Sutcliffe of Apple. He uh, quit before they became really big, kind of like Beatles bassist Stu Sutcliffe. Yeah, it's getting kind of retro there. Um, but anyway... Wozniak and Jobs were really the two sort of movers and shakers. Steve Jobs was the business guy. Like he was kind of a kind of like a Nolan Bushnell. Like he understood business and understood people and was a good salesman and had a lot of ideas and not so good at actually making things happen on the technical side. But Steve Wozniak was, I would say it's fair to class him as a bit of a genius. Um, yeah. Just a, a guy who really had he intuited electronics. He would you know, look at computers or a schematic and think, I can, I can make this better. Uh, I, I don't know. If you want to, you guys want to talk about the breakout story, that's, that's kind of the famous. Uh, he dreamed go-to. in circuitry, I guess. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, yeah, the Apple sort of originated out of Atari mm-hmm. and um, Nolan Bushnell's management style, which was very egalitarian and um, uh, allowed a lot of room for feedback from every level of employee in the the place and so uh, Atari uh, uh, Steve Jobs worked for Atari uh, in 74 or so and they hired him to be an engineering assistant or something like that and they wanted him to design a new video game called Breakout that was Nolan Bushnell's idea and so they assigned him the project and of course Steve Jobs went to his buddy Waz who actually knew how to design stuff and said could you do this for me 
And there's a whole big story about all that and whether Egypt was of money and right. Supposedly like they they offered an incentive like the simpler you can make this yeah. this board, you get a bonus for every we'll give you every yeah, integrated chip you, you take don't out. Yeah, put mm-hmm. in or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, Wozniak made it so simple and elegant mm-hmm. that they couldn't figure out how to reproduce it. So they actually, the, the <laughs> yeah. final product was more complex. But. That's what, yeah, Alan Alcorn, I talk, the first time I ever talked to him, I asked him about that. I said, did you use Woz's design? He said, no. <laughs> but Woz still thinks it, it was his design in the production arcade game. But um, one thing a lot of people don't know is that Ronald Wayne also worked for Atari. Okay. And Al Alcorn told me that recently too when I was talking to him. So a lot of the culture, the company culture of Atari, I mean Apple, came out of Atari. And so out, out of early Atari, which yeah, was different than Warner Atari. Atari. Yeah, before Warner came. Right. In. Mm-hmm. So the the sort of bohemian. Yeah. Uh, although it did have its limits, I, I've I've read that Steve Jobs was pretty unpopular at Atari because he was like oh, the was super hippie stinky. guy who didn't yeah who didn't bathe. Yeah. yeah. But it's that, hard to reconcile that with, you know, the dude in the Japanese custom so design young. black turtlenecks. Yeah. But he was just so young. I mean, everybody's got to have a chance to grow up, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, he, <laughs> he definitely was period. he definitely was that that kind of like hippie sort of guy at the time. But he he definitely he, he certainly matured out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, Jobs and Wozniak had their dream of creating a computer and the idea was a kit computer which was a, a pretty common thing back then. It was basically like, here's the components, you finish it yourself. So they called it the Apple One, and it retailed for $666.66, which was apparently not uh, a sassy reference to Satanism, but in fact was just because Steve Wozniak was like, it's numbers, I like numbers that repeat. So yeah. that's why they that's why Two-thirds they thirds of a grand. The Apple One originated when Woz wanted to design his own little terminal to to dial into a mainframe uh, through a modem and, and program on that mainframe. And so he just wanted a t- cheap TV terminal that he could hook up to a TV set as a display. And so it was one of the first, if not the first, computers that hooked up to a TV set. Mm-hmm. And that was a groundbreaking thing. Yeah, that was really revolutionary because before that you had like oscilloscopes or, you know, really big monitors. Terminals mostly. Yeah. It's like separate serial terminals that were... Um, were like a computer into themselves. They'd connect through a serial connection. That was really popular. Yeah. Or if you wanted to do real graphics, you had a whole huge separate device for that. I mean, you could have a graphical terminal. Yeah. When I was in in grad school at UNC, there was the team there that worked on the pixel planes, which was an entire cabinet full of boards just to address, you know, a large number of pixels with colors. And it's, you know, it's this whole huge refrigerator sized device into itself just to do that. Yeah. yeah, so the, the, the real revolution of the Apple One was, like Ben said, the, uh, <clears throat> the ability for it to use basically consumer televisions to output video. Yeah, composite video output. In yep. fact, mm-hmm. when I did a slideshow about the history of um, computer displays, I talked to Waz and Lee Felsenstein, who designed a, a similar computer at the same time that used a composite display. And I was trying to figure out who was first. And actually, I don't exactly remember. You'd have to read <laughs> <laughs> on PC World to find out. In a, in a lot of cases, things like that, it doesn't really matter who is first because they, they took long enough to develop that it wasn't yeah. like one person saw the other and said, oh, let's do that. Yeah. A lot of times it was just convergent evolution, yes. people having the same Some ideas are inevitable. At the same time. Inventions, yeah. they're just inevitable based on what's available. But Apple made it to market in mm-hmm. 1976 with the Apple One, and 
just sold a bare circuit board for six hundred dollars and sixty-six cents. What's that? Six hundred sixty-six and six hundred six. And uh, you could buy that and then finish it yourself by making your own case for it or doing something. I've seen some pretty weird-looking cases. The the sort of famous one that you'll see around a lot is a wooden case, yeah. which is like this gigantic wooden typewriter and someone very sort of sloppily carved the word Apple One into the, yeah. the That's top That's the one edge. in the Smithsonian. That's why yeah. everybody sees that. Okay. But they didn't sell very many of them. I think they I think only they sold like 200. about 200. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. Um, they're very rare. Very expensive now. And they sell for Somebody offered to sell me one for $13,000 in 2008 or something. I was wow. like, I don't have $13,000. if you had bought that, you could have flipped it for yeah. 10, <laughs> 20 times that value. 10 years, yeah, they're like a million dollars now. Yeah, there was one that was yeah. refurbished that sold for like almost half a million dollars. Yeah, there was crazy. one that sold for 900000 something oh, in seriously? Germany. Yeah, like man, you could have retired on that. Man. Yeah. You really blew it. But I didn't have thirteen thousand. Uh, I mean, I mean yeah. I'm just a journalist. I, I think there's always those those the ones that got away story. Like mine yeah. is that when Apple's stock bottomed out in 1997. Yeah, I really wanted to buy. Like I went to my parents and was like, "Can you lend me some money?" I did the same. This company, thing. this yeah. company is not going to die. Well, I sold a I sold a Mint Fortress Maximus when I was in middle school. So similar, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, I, if I had spent ten thousand dollars on that Apple stock, it would be worth about two million dollars now. Yeah, ten thousand to two million. Oh well, that'd be nice. But my parents very sensibly said, "We don't have that kind of money to just sitting around." And also, you don't know anything about stocks. What's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it never happened. But what could have been? Yeah, it could have it could been be bankrolling. Yeah, I remember it being fourteen dollars a share. That's when I wanted to buy it. But I was like, 14. I think it was down to like <laughs> single digits, and that's when I was. Oh wow! Yeah, it was so like you, seven or eight dollars. Yeah, there you go. That was when the Wired magazine came out. Yeah, it was like the, Prey, the yeah, the Apple and the one. barbed wire. The barbed yeah, wire. it was dark times for a while, but they they rebounded. Yeah, yeah. and mm. you know, it's it's products like the Apple II that give people like me weird faith in this company that always seems to come up with a new good idea every decade or so. They're due for one pretty soon, I think. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, the Apple II was really their first great idea. And we should talk about that. Yeah, we still haven't talked about this <laughs> like an hour in now. <laughs> uh, we're like 20 This is actually in. about the Apple One. Just kidding. The Apple One podcast. All right, here we go. Yeah. This is how Retronauts usually goes, actually. <laughs> it's it's a lot of rambling. Well, wasn't Mystery House from Sierra coded on the Apple One? One oh, of the first, the first graphic know. adventure games, and then it was ported to the Apple II by Roberta Williams. I don't remember. This is just something coming it, from the corner of my brain. I don't know if it it's could true be. or not. Well, so the thing about the Apple II is that porting from Apple One was very easy because they were pretty much the same computer. Similar. They, they had some differences, but they ran the same processor. They had... Uh, they had a different amount of like memory and RAM and, and mm-hmm. everything, but but functionally they were pretty much the same thing. Just the Apple II had more additions to it, and also came in a case, which was nice. Mm-hmm. It came with a keyboard, and it came with uh, not a mouse, but controllers and uh, a tape cassette drive, which eventually became a diskette drive, and uh, it was basically a consumer ready. System, whereas the Apple One was for enthusiasts who didn't mind building their own wooden case and carving the word Apple into the top. The Apple Two was it was a you know a, a, a consumer appliance. It came in a nice beige case with rounded edges. It looked very very attractive, very uh, very compact. Uh, it just hit all the right notes, I think, to for the for the time to sort of 
present a different idea for what a computer should be. Yeah, the Apple One was the no capital version of Apple II when they didn't have money to invest in making a case, so they had to do right. what they had to do, you know. But yeah, the case that that plastic case is probably a big reason why they could sell it for the price they did because it was mass produced. I don't know if it was an injection molded what it was made out of, but yeah, it was plastic and you know, you can just mold it. Mm-hmm. You know, metal sheet metal is expensive, it's heavy, you have to screw it together. Um more labor intensive that increases the cost and so that was a uh, I think it was the first plastic computer case from uh, ever made yeah I thought it was really interesting looking at the at the design of this how like the whole philosophy was kind of to do more with less to get something that could be a plug and play system that was affordable um, but could do all these things by by basically stripping it down to the minimum so like we were saying how you're saying how Waz was tasked with, you know, getting this breakout board down to the fewest chips. Um, and he kept doing the same thing with this, saying, you know, how little can we put into this and then make it up in software to let it do all these things? Um, so, you know, I was reading the, the sound, you know, it had all this expansion capability, but the actual sound chip that was in it, the hardware version of that made a click. Yeah. And that was the only thing it did. It made mm-hmm. a click. And then you use software <laughs> to, like... Yeah, so if any if anyone had that those one of those old Casio keyboards where you could record things and then loop it and play it back, you may have noticed if you like make a really short click on the on the pickup and it's short enough and then you can loop it fast enough, you get notes out mm-hmm. of it. So so you can do all these things with software without putting putting expensive chips in, and that sort of mm-hmm. informed the whole the whole process here. At, at the same time, the the Apple II did have some capabilities that really set it apart from other computers. It could be it could output video in color. Which was apparently because Waz wanted to play a good game of Breakout, <laughs> yep. so yeah. uh, so he created a system that could produce color. Yeah, that's could- what that's what Waz told me in that interview uh, in two thousand seven. I interviewed Waz for Game Developer Magazine, and um, I was interested in his gaming background. And he said that the Apple II was basically like his personal console, so he could design a software version of Breakout because the hardware version of breakout was just done in discrete logic chips and uh it wasn't programmed like we do today so he wanted to program it which is interesting because that's one of the first adventures in software-based video games which is at that time there weren't very many of those Mm -hmm. they only started coming out in the mid seven mid to late 70s um so he wanted to have color he wanted to have sound he wanted to have paddle inputs so he had input Mm -hmm. for two paddles and that could be combined into a joystick, an X and Y axis put together, analog. <clears throat> and the buttons, I think, like everything was, like yeah. you were saying, there were so many circuit, yeah, circuit shortcuts. The buttons are like the command keys or whatever, the control keys or something like and that. And the paddles were done with a tiny amount of hardware. Like all it was for a single <laughs> paddle was it just like controlled the speed of an oscillator yeah. with a tiny amount of hardware. And then he used yeah. a software timer to like see how fast it was going and get a readout of the yeah. paddle. Just all kinds of tricks. In fact, his his trick of doing color with the fewest number of chips possible was one of the crowning achievements of the Apple II because, like, nobody could figure out how to do color video with so few chips at the time. Just lots of tricks and hacks going on there. Well, that, that's where he basically, when you store, I know when you store video images in Apple II, like they're not contiguous in memory. They're right. they're placed yeah. in different places because of the way that he did the refresh timing on the screen. That's yeah, weird. It's very yeah, complicated. Like the color, but 
there was this there was this uh, relationship between the color and the position of the pixels, mm-hmm. or even the subposition yeah, of the that. pixels. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's a very it's a very strange hacky yeah. solution, but it worked. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, lots of lots of crazy stuff happening underneath the hood, uh, but. You know, I guess everyone kind of learned to think like Waz because it became such a popular platform. So everyone had to, you know, program for Apple II. So it probably made people like smarter about how they approach technology, or you know, the people the people who really care. Maybe people who didn't really care got stuck into the rut of just creating for Apple II, and so they went to other systems that conform to what we think of computers nowadays, and we're like, what? But who knows? Anyway, um, one of the interesting things about the Apple II to me is that its main chip, the CPU, was a MOS 6502, which uh, you may recognize as the chip that powers the Nintendo Entertainment System. Mm-hmm. And because of the Apple II's popularity, that became kind of a de facto standard for a lot of American-made computers. I know... Um, uh, crap, I totally blanked out, but I think... Commodore 64 yeah, C64 has had a derivative... Yeah. I think it has a 6510, that's what they call it. And before that, I think like the... Atari 2600 has a 6507, which is a stripped-down version of the 6502 or something like that. Yeah, but that became kind of like the standard for... Yeah, the Commodore PET had a 6502. That's what it was, the PET, yeah. And, uh, well, let's see, what did the... the, I should know the TRS-80 may have been a 6502. Could be, but in in the UK and in Japan, Z80 processors were more common... Which was, you know, that kind of gets into the Nintendo origin story where uh, and Satoru Iwata because he was a big fan of the Commodore PET, which no, was not a popular system in Japan. He was one of the few Japanese programmers that knew 6502 language. So when Nintendo needed help putting together its early games, they could reach out to Satoru Iwata, or actually he reached out to them and was like, hey, yo, I, I know this chip. I, I've programmed stuff on... Yeah, didn't know, he do VIC-20 games uh, for Commodore? It was Pet, by I contract. I think it was Pet games. I've oh, he might have done he, VIC-20 I read too. that he did VIC-20, like Hal did. Uh, some of, They did the Jupiter Lander, a lot of the first contract work games for the VIC-20, which is really neat. So it's all it's all kind of tied together. Yeah, everything's connected. Tiny, tiny universe. Um so it wasn't as fast as an NES. It was 1.023 megahertz, whereas the NES is like 3.5. Um, but, you know, it's... The it's reason kind of, they chose the 6502 was because it was really cheap. And that seems to be <laughs> the reason for a lot of people using but, the 6502. you know, the quality control is bad, and the yield was bad in production. And there's a story of when um, Chuck Peddle, the designer of the 6502, took, took him to a conference or something, and he had this big bucket or barrel full of them. And it turned out that the only only the ones on the top, the chips on the top, worked. The rest were like duds, rejects <laughs> from the factory. Well, fortunately, the uh, I've never heard about like Apple II recalls, so the, yeah. I, I assume those were all ironed out at the factory. Yeah, they probably ironed out later. Yeah, within a year or so. So anyway, um, that's that's pretty much the basics for the Apple II. Um, like we said, it could output to television monitors. Uh, it could do NTSC or PAL. So. It could work in either the U.S. or Europe, which was extremely helpful, I'm sure, for uh, for Apple expanding its reach beyond American shores. 
Um, and it shipped with its own built-in basic, Integer Basic, which was developed by Steve Wozniak. Uh, that was later replaced by AppleSoft Basic, which was, I guess, more flexible. Yeah, that was developed by Microsoft. And so Integer Basic could only do integers um, math. So it couldn't do floating point Hence decimals and things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was a significant drawback. Right. I mean, once they yes for bigger applications like financial things. But you got to walk before you can run. Yeah. And there's also the fact that it, it didn't do lowercase characters. <laughs> right, in the first. <laughs> but that was good enough mm-hmm. for uh, a homebrew computer in 1977, which is what Waz wanted. Yeah. You know, And that was even standard on a lot of mainframes back then. You know, you, you had your basic yeah. ASCII that was not even the full set. You would just I mean, have... you, you still came across you know console games in the 90s that were all uppercase. Oh, sure. Uh, someone just released a ROM patch for uh, working designs games, Lunar and Lunar 2. Hmm that uh, allow you to play the game with lowercase letters, which was not <laughs> present. It's a lot of reading to do in, in all caps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it sounds like everybody's shouting. Yeah, basically, yeah. Come like to it, my temple. Exactly. Save the game. On NES it was one thing, but when you got to you know, like novel-length video games, mm-hmm. it's a little fatiguing. So, yeah, so I mean, there were definitely limitations to the Apple II, but those are understandable, and those were many of those were ironed out over subsequent releases. There were several different models of the Apple II, the 2 Plus, the 2E, the 2C, the 2C Plus, and the 2GS. Each of those had its own different selling point. Um, do you guys have experience with those? I think I have ever, all of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> so which is your favorite? I don't know. Recently, I've been playing with the 2C Plus, which is really neat because it was the last one they produced, um, the last new model they produced. Um, it has a three and a half inch 800K floppy drive built into it. So it's just like the 2C. It's all in one except no monitor or anything. Uh, but it's got that um, 800K the, drive. And the newfangled. It has a, uh, it can run it. I think it's four megahertz. It has like sort of a zip chip built in accelerator, so you can switch right. it really fast. So, what year was that? Was that like the nineties? Oh man, I should know this by heart, but it was. Mm. Uh, see, Apple II was discontinued in ninety three. It was you know ninety something, ninety one, ninety eighty eight, eighty nine. Well, to me, the most interesting is the uh, the Apple II GS, which is. <laughs> which is the uh, the one sixteen bit model that they produced? Yeah, that's um, and that's it's crazy that there was a sixteen bit Apple II. But the the really interesting thing is that it also used a like a, a, a it kind of did the same upgrade path as the NES to Super NES. the uh, The chip that it used was the same chip that you found in the Super NES. Yeah. Uh, so of course it could be backward compatible, and that just kind of fuels the idea that Nintendo designed the Super NES originally to be compatible with the NES, even though they didn't actually execute on that. So uh, Yeah, the 2GS is a hybrid platform. It's kind of its own thing. It could run the 8-bit software, but it had a um, 16-bit processor with greater colors and an awesome soft- software synthesizer for sound, um, or a wavetable thing, didn't it? Something like that. Yeah, and so I think the one, I think the model I have the most experience with is the Apple IIe. Um, so that was the revision where they condensed a lot of the hardware onto a, a single ASIC chip and brought the price down again, um, which I think helped it get into a lot of grade school computer labs, which mm-hmm. is where I found it. Um, so I'm pretty sure yeah. my grade school had had Apple a lab IIe's. with, with yeah. yeah, you know, a dozen, a dozen Apple IIe's with 
with the usuals, Oregon Trail and all that stuff and some other mm-hmm. games on it. Um, and so that was where I had a lot of my experience with with this platform. Yeah, for me, Apple II is, is a really huge gap in my personal experience because I was, you know, growing up and in computer labs and stuff around the same time that the Apple II was sort of at its peak. But because I lived in Lubbock, Texas, where Texas Instruments had a, uh, a factory, all the schools had TI-99 4As. And so I didn't really see Apple IIs. Um, you know, every, every lab had a TI computer and there was one, uh, the one Apple II, I don't know which model, maybe the 2E, when I was in like sixth grade. And that was like the teacher's computer in the computer lab. And they eventually phased out the TIs in favor of Macintoshes. Mm-hmm. So we just kind of leapfrogged that, over mm-hmm. the, uh, the two. Uh, but I did, you know, I was, I, I was always super enthusiastic about messing around with computers as a kid. So I kind of ingratiated myself as the computer lab teacher's pet. So I would like go and hang out and stuff at the, uh, the, the student computer lab and, uh, she'd let me play Load Runner on the two. We're not listening. Sorry, we were looking up the timeline. Oh, okay, <laughs> I had a feeling. 1988 for the for two the C for plus. the two C plus. 1988. Yeah, yeah that and the came to mind. Yeah, and the two E was out in '83. If so. I hadn't drank so much gin, I would remember. <laughs> All right. Whoops. That's the problem with gin tendo. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, this we... is gin apple. <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyway, that, that's pretty much the basics of the Apple II. Uh, we'll talk about the. Apple II vis-a-vis video games, but first let's take a quick, uh, quick refresher break. sort of gone through the rigorous introduction to the Apple II, let's talk about the important thing, which is the games. There were so many games, so many groundbreaking, influential, genre-defining games. I mean, it's it's kind of amazing. I guess, you know, the, the system hung on for 16 years, and even up toward the very end, you had revolutionary video games being made for it. Jordan Mechner created Prince of Persia for... Apple II in 1989. Like, that's, yeah, that's, that's nuts. That was amazing. 12 years after the system's debut. Yeah. And Ultima 5 still was on there. I think it may have been the original platform for that. Really? Ultima yeah. 4 and 5. Yeah, so it, it, it hung on. And because of its popularity, I mean, it was really the first breakout computer system. Uh, and it would be another five years before the, uh, the Commodore 64 launched. So it kind of had a, you know, like a big run uh, for a while in the U.S. So because of that, you know, the video game market was just beginning to blossom. Uh, that, that worked out to mean a lot of games showed up on Apple II. Um, so if you look back in the 70s, obviously there weren't that many uh, games that came out. There was Steve Wozniak's uh, Brickout, which was Breakout, but with bricks. Mm-hmm. And sideways. Um, what's that? <laughs> and sideways. Sideways. Yeah, sideways. That's the important thing. Uh, that was actually, I would, I would say that was um, unusually 
thoughtful of him to create a clone that wasn't a total direct ripoff <laughs> of the game he was he was imitating. I mean, back in that day, you had you know Pong clones that were just Pong, but yeah. he at least turned up Atari's breakout sideways. Yeah, ninety degrees or something. Totally different. Uh, but really, to me, the two big games released in the seventies for for Apple II were Akalabeth and Temple of Apshai, both of which are Apshai, both of which are very early, very sort of prototypical role playing games. But the the Apple II would really become sort of um, like the 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 petri dish for for computer rpgs for in, in a lot of cases so you kind of get a, a sense of what's going to happen on the system with these very early releases there were only maybe like a dozen games released before 1980 for the system so you know you have two big rpgs i think kind of shows the intentions and i think it also shows the advantage of a computer over a console like you compare temple of Apshai to adventure on Atari 2600, and there's a lot more happening in Temple of Apshai. A lot it more is, RAM. Yeah. <laughs> it makes a big difference. Yeah. More storage space, more yeah. memory, um, more more interface options. You could type as opposed to move things around with a single stick and a button. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that made a huge difference. Can you imagine uh, as a kid in the 70s, if you're like a technically inclined kid getting this computer where you could program anything you want on it with no restrictions. It's like giving everybody a game development kit. Yeah. You I know, mean, that was, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much how so, Richard Garriott got a start. Yeah. And so many other developers like, mm-hmm. uh, Tim Sweeney. And, um, who was the other one I mentioned earlier? Uh, it is in here somewhere. Um, Mechner. Yeah. John, John Romero. Jordan Mechner. Uh, Romero. John Romero, yeah. He he got his start on Apple too. Yeah, so um, definitely a, a, an important jumping off point for many developers. Um, do you guys want to talk about, about Akalabeth or Temple of Apshai at all? Um, I haven't really played them, I, but I've, I'm familiar with I've them. I've played Akalabeth in a simulator on a PC. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've played the Apple II, I mean, yeah, the Apple II version. Um, well, it I mean, was very primitive. <laughs> it had ugly skeletons in it, but I mean, it was and cool at the time. Yeah, unfortunately, I missed out on a lot of the uh, the role playing uh, side of the games that were going on back then because, as I said, I had access to this in a school computer lab. Um, so even when we could get away with playing games that weren't edutainment, um, it was still going to be in short bursts. So it would be more towards the action game right. side of things. I didn't have it in my house. I had a different early computer, which we'll probably talk about on a different episode. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, so I didn't I didn't really get to dip my toe into the Apple II, the longer games, the RPGs, and that stuff so much. I wasn't a Calabeth first person the whole time. Yeah, like so that wireframe wire first, first, first person dungeon crawl kind of thing. It predates Wizardry, doesn't it? It does, yeah. So, yeah, so probably. Yeah. Wizardry was nineteen eighty one, a Calabeth was nineteen seventy nine. Seventy nine, yeah. So that's real early. And Temple yeah. of Apshai was a one of the first dungeon crawler kind of top down things that of the vein that inspired Rogue and those Yeah, I mean it really does look like a prototype for Rogue. It doesn't have any of the mm-hmm. depth. Uh or substance, but there's still a lot going on. Like it's a top-down graphical sort of adventure where you walk around and bump into bad guys and kill them. Yeah. Uh, very, very simplistic, but you know, at the time I'm sure it was incredibly intoxicating. I love going back and watching, you know, modern day movies and TV series where 
they're set in like the late seventies, early eighties, and people are playing these computer games and video games and being like, wow, I can't believe I can do this. Stuff like Mm -hmm. Halt and Catch Fire or I don't know. There's some other shows kind of like that uh, where, you know, kids play old video games and there's just the sense of wonder. And I can, I can remember that even though I didn't really. E.T. is like that. Doesn't E.T. have a good video game scene or something? I think so. You may just hear it. But, you mean, uh, you mean E.T. the video game, E.T. Right? the movie. <laughs> we, did have, we did have something very similar to Roguelike, and I don't remember the name of it, so I don't know if it was related to Temple of Opshai, but on the Osborne PC that my dad had, um, you know, which had this little tiny text-only screen, so you know, you're limited to a dozen columns and rows of text. Um, but so it's very similar to what you see in Rogue, where it was all just little gra- little representations. But it was that. It was another game in that genre. That um, was very very early yeah. on the TI. There was Tunnels of Doom. Did yep. you ever play that? Uh, I didn't, but I had a friend who had a TI and played it and let me watch, which was this about as good as I got back then. Okay, uh, but it looked really cool oh, on, uh, on it, the calculator. On the TI no, 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 ninety nine. On the ninety nine. Okay, yeah. on the ninety nine. Yeah. It was a cartridge game, but it loaded yeah. off discs like extra dungeons or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was pretty rad. But that's the TI. We're talking about Apple II. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Coming back. Yep. So then in 1980, you have two other very seminal games. Uh, Mystery House, which was... That was the debut game by Online, or Sierra Online. Sierra, yeah. Ken and uh, Roberta Williams. Yeah, so it wasn't on the Apple One then, it, like I mentioned. Well, they might have developed it on the Apple One. It, maybe. I moved it My over. memory's probably just flawed. But it was I mean, the do first... Do you think there were actually commercial releases for Apple One, given that it was owned by 200 people? I don't think it was a yeah. commercial release. I think it may have just been developed for fun. shared around, but... Yeah. yeah. That could be. Um, I just disregard that. Well, I mean, it's 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 fine because I mean, it does kind of get into something we haven't really talked about, which is the the communities that grew up around these. You know, um, there were the you know user groups and, and things like that. Yeah, and publishing a game in Richard Garriott's time was a Ziploc bag. Yep, a call it bag. <laughs> was not exactly kind of uh, baggy. Yeah, it was not exactly like you know a deluxe edition game you get now with. Uh, like a porcelain statue and a steel book. It was pretty much the <laughs> opposite. Off the disc, yeah. And it um, certainly makes sense that some of those 200 people who had the Apple One kit would, and were messing with it would have been the people to go on and be developers right. for, for yeah. the Apple II once it actually happened. And, and probably most of those systems were sold in around you know Silicon Valley. Like yeah. I doubt that, uh-huh. that that computer had national distribution. So Not there was really, probably this little yeah. pocket of people who started using this computer and then the Apple II came out nationwide they sort of had the leg up on it. So I, I'm, so Mystery I'm, House we're, was the first graphical adventure game, I'm pretty sure. Yep. It was a, it was a hybrid, really, of, of text and graphics, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it did have a, so, you know, it's kind of like a Colobeth style wireframe graphics yeah. for each scene. Yeah, hand drawn, really, really bad graphics, but they're neat. That was a new concept. It was a text adventure game with pictures, essentially. Mm-hmm. So. And at the same time, uh, 1980, also you saw the sort of pioneering graphical or text adventure game come out to Apple II, Zork. Um, and that had been around since 1977, 78. It kind of evolved over the mm-hmm. course of a few years as a mainframe system uh, collaborative effort at MIT. Yeah. And heavily influenced by the Colossal Cave Adventure that yep. we were talking about, which was really the, the origin of that right. whole genre. And um, yeah, that, that had been a uh, like a non-commercial release, but 1980 saw the first mm-hmm. public commercial release on Apple II. And, you know, we talked about how Apple II 
gave developers the ability to create more and uh, do more than consoles. But in this case, they actually had to cut Zork into two halves, Zork 1 and Zork 2. I think it's 3. I think Zork is pretty much just 1 and 2, and then 3 is is sort of like its own new thing. But but it was basically two games and... uh, or it was one big. game, but they cut it into yeah, it's kind too of like, big for a PC essentially. Yeah, because yeah. those those added memory before were all developed on mainframes where yeah, it's called dungeon there were a lot originally. of limits, but they certainly had a lot of memory available. Yep. So um, so that was that was kind of the beginning of Infocom as a company, and they would they would be a major presence on Apple II pretty much through their end. Uh, they were eventually bought up, as we talked about last episode actually, or two episodes ago, the Activision episode. They were bought up by Activision. Which then became mediagenic, and it all fell apart. But but they during also the into being big on Macintosh too. So. Yeah, but during the sort of golden era of the Apple II, Infocom reigned supreme for text adventures. In 1981, you see more diversity in games. You have other text and graphical adventures like the follow-up to Mystery House. Like, well, not like sequel or anything, but just the next Sierra Online game, which was Soft Porn Adventures, which I don't know anyone who's ever actually played that. I've played it. Have you? <laughs> yeah. How, we had it for the Atari out? 800 when we were kids, of course. <laughs> I think it was a bootleg copy. It was, you know... It was kind of raunchy, but not really pornographic. It was very tame by modern standards, but uh, it was fun for a couple of little kids to play. Just a little farther than Leisure Suit Larry. Yeah, Leisure <laughs> Suit Larry was based on soft porn adventure. Yeah. The story yeah, was yeah. very similar, mm-hmm. but it had graphics. So, yeah, I uh, I've never played it, but I looked at a uh, I, I watched. Believe it or not, there's a long play of it on YouTube. Because what's <laughs> what could be more exciting than a long play of a text? He adventure? said long play. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Beavis. Um, I'll reference. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I know there's a like videos of someone playing it through, but you kind of lose something with a graphical adventure when you know all the the choices to make and you just like type that out. But it didn't really seem to have a lot of you know sex. It was more just like you were traveling through. Uh, descriptions of really, really overwritten descriptions of seedy places with roaches and and dirty bathrooms and stuff. I was like, eh. yeah, that's a good description of it. It's mostly just that atmosphere here in. It's yeah. not really a sex game, right? <laughs> did it ever make I, it to the to the hot tub with Roberta Williams? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> but that, that's definitely why that game is is best known because you yeah. have like people who worked at Sierra Online, including Roberta Williams, naked in a hot tub. Three women with a, like a, a waiter, waiter yeah. holding champagne. Yeah. Was that Ken Williams? Actually, was the waiter Ken? Maybe, Williams? but I'm sure he was excited about that. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, I will volunteer for this photo yeah. shoot. Um, on the more, I don't know, the the less smutty, more punch and Nazi Nazi side of things, you had Castle Wolfenstein, which uh, a series that still lives on. Um, there's probably going to be another Wolfenstein game out this year or next year is my guess. It's, it's very different these days, but Castle Wolfenstein was uh, very influential. It, it kind of had the top-down view of Temple of Opsi, or you know, if you wanted to look mm-hmm. at the arcade inspiration, something like Berserk or Frenzy. 
but it played it, it did not have just like the pure shooting action of an arcade game it was more yeah you took steps it was like one step at a time and then you have to find a gun find some bullets hide from the guards and stuff yeah there was stuff to it yeah you could put on disguises you could dress yourself as an ss guard wow you nice. could, my brother played that on the atari a lot so he had ports of these games yeah. same with temple of Abshai played on there yeah, the one step at a time also makes it sound like sort of a filtering in the rogue, the roguelike influence there. Maybe. But, I, I think Rogue came out in 1981. So, yeah. again, I think it's a lot of these ideas just sort of came together at the same time. Yeah. Uh, Didn't but it have voices, too? It did. It had, like, like very, very simple digitized voices yeah. saying, Octone! Yeah. Which, yeah. you know, when you consider the fact that the speaker was basically a clicker, a clicker on or off, yeah. the fact that they could... They could fake someone speaking German, even even so, in a very static way. It's code modulation. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of impressive. Yeah, it's neat. Uh, and then the other two big games. Well, Adventure showed up on uh, on Apple II that year. Ben, you want to talk about that one? I see you made notes. Oh yeah, so I was just just confirming that that was a port of of the old original Advent. Colossal Cave Adventure code base, uh, which had been embellished on many times since right. it was originally done in the PDP on the on a PDP eleven. Um, so you know, originally it was this guy um, who was the first author's name, Will Crowther. He was a caver, and he was just wanted to convey the experience of exploring through through a bunch of caves, and so he kind of made that into this text adventure prototype. And then some other people came on and added fantasy elements, um, and it kept evolving. and And yeah, a part of it eventually made it onto the Apple II. So yeah, that, that's kind of like almost you know the the origins of video game role playing in a sense. Um, but in 1981, you had two games that really defined what role playing would be, which were Ultima One, basically the um, the next game from the creator of Akalabeth, Richard Garriott, uh, and it really did lay down a lot of the the basics of of what RPGs would be and Wizardry, which was sort of the definitive dungeon crawler and there are still games being made in the wizardry mold such as my personal favorite Etrian Odyssey yes. uh, and you know almost 40 years later like that's still a very viable style of game like Japan it's still very loved interesting Dungeon wizardry they did and yes. so it influenced so much yeah i think that came to them through um, well you know some of the some of the people who japanese developers who were into rpgs in the early days played wizardry in english um but then uh hank rogers the guy who, who would eventually go on to bring tetris to nintendo uh developed a game called the black onyx uh, for japanese pcs and that was the first game developed specifically for the japanese market the first rpg and uh like proper rpg i think you know and th- that really did what become platform sort of was a, that uh, that was i want to say pc 8801 um, it could have been any could have been FM one. I don't know. But, uh, it was it was you know one of those early Japanese PCs, and uh, it became hugely influential. And you know even though Japanese RPGs eventually went off more in the Dragon Quest direction, that love of dungeon crawlers never really died. So yeah, that wizardry has become more of a big deal in Japan than in the U.S. And that actually I, I think had a, an impact on the the career trajectory of one of the founders of Surtech, the company that made Wizardry, uh, Robert Woodhead, would eventually leave the company in the late 80s right. uh, because he just, like, 
Japan loved his game and he would go to Japan and he loved Japan. So he founded a company called Animego one that our, was into bringing anime to America. He's one of our hometown guys. Animego is down here yep. in Raleigh. Oh, it's in Raleigh? I thought it was I in think, Wilmington. Or, no, Wilmington. That's yeah. right, Wilmington. But close, yeah. Wilmington. But, um, yeah. yeah. He's definitely someone I need to track down. He's, he's a great guy. I've, I've run into him at conventions uh-huh. a few times. He's, he's really easy to talk to. But, yeah, it's, it's just kind of uh, interesting how there's all these intersections. Like, the video games industry in the 80s was very, very small. So you get you get lots of weird little collisions like this. But yeah, those were like Wizardry and Ultima are basically like that's that's role playing games right there. Just about anything you want to find in an RPG is either in one of those two games or Dragon Quest. That's yeah. it's hard or, or Rogue, I guess. And the precursors of Rogue. I mean, that's that's such a complicated lineage that goes back through mainframes. There's a lot of yeah. contested uh, who who did what first. Mm-hmm. There was some games like that on the Plato educational system and in the early 70s and it's complicated but yeah wizardry just profoundly influential yeah i mean in a lot of these cases people you know took ideas that they had seen before elsewhere but kind of the important thing that they did was to bring those all together into a package that they could did not only that they could sell but parties did Wizardry have parties? It did, yeah. Part, yeah. So yeah. that may have been one of the key innovations versus those other games. A party-based uh, RPG. Ultimate one was just the Avatar. Yeah, I'm not sure. Party. Yeah, a lot of the first iterations were single-player single player character. Yeah, single person. I mean, even Dragon Quest at that. Yeah. The first game was a single-player game, or a single-character game. And then mm-hmm. yep. the second game introduced, you know, a party. So... Uh, yeah, Wizardry definitely like super influential. I'd love to do a full episode on on that series sometime. But uh, definitely one of the reasons the Apple II was so important, I think, uh, because it it really was. It, again, you know, a lot of these ideas did exist and were kicking around before that, but this is where they really took form, and so I put them into a package and was like, this is a self-contained product that you can enjoy. And actually, Wizardry was more than self-contained because each of its uh, next few sequels sort of required you to have played and completed the previous game. You could take your party into the sequel. Yeah, transfer them over. Yeah. Like uh, Bard's Tale. You could do that in Bard's Tale. That was a good game. Yeah, and that was was kind of like, you know, the sequels became increasingly arcane. Uh, up mm-hmm. to the fourth sequel, which is has a reputation for being one of the hardest video games ever. Do you guys know about that one? I lost out after maybe. I mean, I, I just stopped paying attention to Wizardry around. Uh, well, I mean, I think I I played the first two games most of the way through. Not yep. that you know, like whenever Wizardry Four came out, I was probably like five years old or something. What uh, year? Was it? it was actually like nineteen eighty eight. Okay, really late. so I was seven. Mm-hmm. But okay. yeah, I, was, were there any ports to that to the NES or anything like that? I can't remember. Uh, the first two so Wizardries came up came out on NES. Maybe the third one. I don't. I don't think the third one. Yeah. Um, and there were. I think there was a Wizardry game on Super NES, but it was like Wizardry Five. Yeah. I don't think Wizardry Four made it off of microcomputers because again, it was legendarily difficult. You played as the villain, and the quest was you had been imprisoned in a dungeon and your, your, your journey was to get out of the dungeon and uh, to just be like total jerks about it. Sirtek took uh, player parties, players would submit their parties on diskette 
And they would take like these high level player parties and turn them into roving groups of enemies that you would have to deal with. And Wordna himself, the villain, was like super weak, but you could summon enemies. And so you were basically fighting through heroes with the trash mobs that heroes destroy. Yeah. So a total inversion. It's like every dungeon level is, is full of crazy traps and just like teleporter mazes and all kinds of just like anything you could think of. In a, in a first-person dungeon crawler that makes you angry is probably in Wizardry 4. So, That's why I never played it. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably just as well. But Wizardry 5 was a new team and, and totally reinvented the, the entire series and is really well regarded. So, like, the last, you know, four Wizardry games, five, six, seven, eight, uh, all have great reputations. But I think they're kind of hard to play these days. Anyway, um, this has become the Wizardry podcast. <laughs> well, now we've done our Wizardry retrospective. I guess we don't need to yeah, do that one. Yeah, farewell. <laughs> um, but around this time, you started to see a lot of uh, uh, arcade games being ported to Apple II. And I have never played any of those. How were those ports? Like, how did Burger Time turn out on Apple II? I haven't played Not that one. Um, some, of the, some of the other ones coming up in the next few years. Atari Soft. Uh, Moon Patrol was an arcade port. Um, that was Moon. So Moon Patrol was actually one of Irem's right. first hits. So Irem of R Type and all that. Um, although the ports I read were handled by Atari. Actually. Yeah, Atari oh, Soft yeah. at Atari that time. Soft. That was the label they saw. Um, but it was pretty. I mean, you know. So so I hadn't actually, of course, at the time I hadn't played the arcade version, so I didn't know what I was missing out on. And of course it doesn't look nearly as good, but it, it gets the concept through mm-hmm. pretty well. And it even pulls some of the tricks. So like um, Moon Patrol in Arcade was one of the first games to use parallax mm-hmm. scrolling uh, with multiple planes of backgrounds going at different speeds. Um, and so then the Apple version, they actually did their best to keep it. The only thing that remains is like a single vector line of mountains in the right. background that's being redrawn that. at a different scroll rate yeah. from the foreground, and that's all it is. But it still gets you the effect. So you know, <laughs> a for effort. Um, they definitely tried to keep it all, and and it was just a fun little game. You know, it's a it's a scroll to the scroll to the right and shoot things. You're in this moon buggy. You have to jump over pits, blow up things in front of you. Aliens come in from the top, and you shoot upwards to get them. And it's just go until you die, basically, as it throws more and more stuff at you. Hmm. But but as a, as a little bite sized arcade experience, it was it was pretty nice. Um, I, I forgot the guy's name, but the designer of Moon Patrol would go on to design Street Fighter. Wow, or not it? Street Fighter? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right, Street Fighter. He designed Kung Fu, and then oh, wow. he left Irem to Capcom yeah. and worked on Street Fighter. Huh. Wow. So cool. Again, small world. All these yeah, little connections. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to me, I don't know about you guys, but to me, the big game uh, that that showed up on Apple II in 1982 was Choplifter. Uh, there were a lot of ports and, and games that showed up simultaneously on other platforms, but Choplifter was, uh, I don't know, it had a big impact on me, at least. It's a, it's a shooter with a twist. Um, you fly a helicopter, and you, you, know, you have to take on enemy jets and uh, missile emplacements on the ground. So, you know, that part of it, pretty standard fare, but the point of it is not just to blow up the enemies. I mean, you really don't even have to fight the enemies if you don't want. The real point is to land and pick up hostages who are in the crisis zone and then take them back to your base and deposit them safely. Uh, so it's kind of got a little bit of defender, defender in there. Yeah. But much, it's much slower paced. And uh, you have to be a lot more careful with the hostages because if 
you land on them, they'll die. And if you oh, yeah, sit around yeah. on the ground too long, you know, jets will fly past and bomb you. And if your chopper's shot down while there are hostages aboard, then you lose the hostages. Now, so now that you say that, I'm remembering that frustration. I think I played that one mm-hmm. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, that one was interesting because it started on Apple II and became a pretty big series on consoles and in the mm-hmm. arcade. Sega developed a, an arcade port of it. Huh. And... Uh, yeah. There were several sequels, including Choplifter. I think it went up to three on Super NES. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, it, it had kind of a, a little life to it, but but it started on Apple II. Yeah, Choplifter was really popular. I, I found it really frustrating. I think I played on the Apple II, but it was popular, so it had something to it, obviously. <laughs> Same with Moon Patrol. It was I have discs of Moon Patrol. Like you know, you could tell how popular games were back then by how many copies of pirated discs you have. <laughs> you know, so I could go through my collection. I've gotten like five or six collections of discs from different people. You could just tally them up. Mm-hmm. Moon Patrol is always there. Choplifter is always there. We didn't get away with that stuff in the school computer lab. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> had, had to have legit copies of a few things. But. And 1983 would go on to be a really big year. Maybe, I don't know, maybe one of the biggest for... Apple II, just because of all the the games, like really big influential games that showed up there. Um, yeah, you look like you're about to say something. No, no. I never talk. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I get? I'm just I'm, I'm recalling the '83. You know, so oh. much happened that year. If you say '83, it's like an explosion of memories come back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was this was interesting because it's right around the time that the U.S. console market collapsed. So Atari and a television and ColecoVision were all dying. And mm-hmm. people were starting to look more toward the personal computer. And the C64 had launched the previous year, 1982. Um, but, you know, the Apple II was still big, still had kind of like the, the biggest mind share. So you started seeing a lot of really great games that you know, people started to look in, in, in the U.S. to the personal computer as where they wanted to put their games instead of the Atari 2600. So there's kind of a paradigm shift that happens here. And I think it kind of gave the Apple II, uh, you know, helped give it some extra life. Um, a lot of people upgraded from the 2600 straight to a, a home computer, mm-hmm. like a Atari 800 or Commodore 64 or Apple II. And that was, it's sort of, um, that's one of the reasons why I made my blog Vintage Computing and Gaming is to tie those things together. Whereas mm-hmm. some people just say, these are all video games, mm-hmm. these are all computers, but they actually are interrelated. So Yeah. That was well, kind of the especially next... with the with the console market collapsed. You know, right. the, yeah. the PC market had to pick up all those traditions and keep the them going. PC the market was one of the reasons why the console market collapsed. I mean, just that availability there, mm-hmm. and um, they were not that much more expensive than you know Commodore's offerings were not that much more expensive expensive than new game consoles and souls, mm-hmm. and you can do them anyway. That's for another time. No, that's great. Um, you know, some of the games, the, the big games that came out in '83 for Apple II were um, games that you think, oh, that seems more of a natural fit for a console. But, you know, despite being more fast-paced, more action, more sports, they did make their debut on PC. Um, one-on-one Dr. J versus Larry Bird was a one-on-one basketball game. That's notable. It was a, an early release. Was it the first release it by might, Electronic Arts? It, might it was be. very early. It Electronic was uh, the first Arts. licensed uh, the first game to use licensed likenesses of, of athletes. Well, actually, Pele Soccer was probably the first for the Atari 2600. Oh, okay. But for a computer. Right. Well, yeah. and, you know, also 
for a sport that Americans cared about at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Pele sure. was pretty well known back then, but Americans were Pele, like soccer. Yeah. yeah, Pele. Good old Pele. So that was that was a pretty big deal. Um, pinball construction set. I guess that was more of a natural. It's another EA years, game. But, oh, that's right. It yeah. was developed by, designed by Bill Budge. This was back <laughs> when uh, Electronic Arts was like Electronic Artists. Yeah. Let us let us celebrate the creators who make these games. I did a really neat interview with Trip Hawkins for the what thirtieth anniversary of Electronic Arts. It should have been a couple of years ago, twenty thirteen or something. But. Uh, yeah, that was the idea was to be like a, a publisher of games to treat them like they were record albums. <clears throat> Excuse me, like record albums and um, give the creators their due, like artists, you know, mm-hmm. with their name on the label and everything. Yep. The programmers. Like Atari under their new corporate masters had not been. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Activision was motivated by much the same. Um, so that was, yeah, both both one on one and pinball construction set were, were pretty big deals. Pinball construction set was kind of the beginning of the the construction genre. The idea of like you can be a programmer too. Here are some simple tools. Here are the resources you need. Please, please make things. In make this case, you're making pinball tables, yeah. and that would be very a very cool. influential game. Uh, yeah. Let's see. That you also saw Archon. Right. I assume it's Archon, not Archon. Yeah. Archon. Uh, which was kind of like the precursor to Battle Chess. It was basically. Chess, but with with melee combat. Yeah, I disagree. It's not like battle chess because battle chess is just chess with animations. Yeah. So it's got the same rules as chess. It just the characters beat each other over the okay. head when you take capture. Enlighten me. What's different about Archon? Well, Archon is a turn-based strategy game based on a board game like setting where you have different pieces, and when you try to capture a piece on a square, then you go into a mode that is the melee combat, the action-oriented. So it's all real-time. Two players have to fight, face off and shoot each other, or smash each other. Huh. And uh, there's skill at avoiding each other and stuff. That's one of my brother's favorite games on the Atari 800, which is actually the platform it originated on, Atari 8-bit okay. computer. But it was big on the Apple II as well, and Commodore 64. And then finally, maybe the biggest game that year would have been Load Runner by Doug Smith. Um, published by Broderbund, or Broderbund. Um, and that was, you know, that's another one of these games that was kind of an evolution of other ideas. Uh, in this case, taking Universal's Space Panic, which in turn was kind of based on uh, Hey Yankyo Alien, which I covered on Game Boy World, uh, and I've said Hey Yankyo Alien in, out loud probably more times than any other <laughs> white being. person in the world. <laughs> Um, hey, uncle. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like the idea was, it was you know kind of a platformer, but without jumping, mm-hmm. there was climbing and falling, uh, and you were constantly being pursued by enemy robots or monks or whatever they call them in the manual, the version you play. Uh, but you could defend yourself by digging holes, and mm-hmm. the robots would fall into those holes, mm-hmm. and eventually the holes would fill back in. If the robot was in a hole, 
as it filled in, then it would be destroyed and have to respawn. And your goal was to collect gold piles that were scattered around the maze <laughs> and escape. I don't remember the gold part. Where, yeah, are you talking like, about Load Runner now? Yeah, Space Panic. Okay, Load yeah, Runner. the gold is, is Load Runner. Yeah, yeah. But do you know there was a, a clone of Space Panic called Apple Panic that was really popular? I did. On Apple yes, too. I have heard that. And that's another game that's always pirated. Like everybody has a copy. So must have been pretty influential. <laughs> yeah, Space Panic. Um, the big difference between Space Panic and Load Runner is one, there's the collection element of the yeah, gold, the gold. Load Runner. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And also in Space Panic, Can't when you, you dig climb? a hole, mm-hmm. what's that? Can't you climb in Load Yeah, Runner? there's overhand bars. Yeah, there's ladders. And ladders. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, ladders are in Space Panic also. Yeah, okay. But okay, when, yeah, in Space Panic, when you dig a hole, the enemy will just fall through it oh, down okay. to the lower level. But in Load Runner, it'll fall into the hole and get mm-hmm. trapped. And can't you bury them in Space Panic? Like, yeah, you fill can't it bury back them up. Like, uh, but in Load Runner, you can't right. fill it. So you have to wait until it refills on okay. its own. And also in Load Runner, the robots can pick up gold if they run over it. Huh. So you can collect all the gold you see and not be able to escape the level. And so you have to figure out like which robot has the gold. Wow. So when you, so you, dig, when you get into a hole, the then it'll fall the hole and the robot will drop it mm. and you can pick it up. Right. So it's a it's a it's a very good and very influential game. That's another one of those that became really popular in Japan versus here. Mm-hmm. Like the first Road Runner was a, a really good. It was a strong seller on PCs, and you know there were some console versions of it. But in Japan, it was one of the first third party games for Famicom, and all those early third party games sold millions of copies, and uh, so it spawned a, a pretty big series. After that, there were several additional sequels for um, for Famicom and Disk System and, you know, then other platforms, Sega Master System or SG-1000. Uh, yeah, so it really became a big deal. And that was actually something Doug Smith talked about in an interview later in his life um, about how it was really kind of weird that, like, it was a successful game here, but then over in Japan it became this... A cultural phenomenon. Yeah, phenomenon. Yeah. I don't want to, you know, belabor the point, but are there any other games sort of later in the system's life uh, that you guys think are worth highlighting? Mm-hmm. Karateka. Yeah, Karateka. Karateka some, uh, Jordan Mechner's. Yeah. Uh, that one was really big in the computer lab. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess both because, you know, it's it's fairly short but dense in challenges. Yeah. Um, and unlike a lot of the other games where your actions are very, it, it feels like there's a lot of things you can do in it with different combinations of punches and kicks and different kinds of enemies these come at you through the levels um and it was really you know it was really one of the first games that that gave you a feeling of of hand-to-hand combat um you know so it's the sort of thing that went on obviously with nectar to become prince of persia uh but it also feels like a, a real precursor to fighting games um mm-hmm. so that was yeah. that was something people really loved to put in, time into getting better at. In Karataka, he digitized his brother too. Like, mm-hmm. not he did that in Prince of Persia, but I think he he took pictures of his brother doing karate or himself or something. Yeah, so and frame by frame. I by think hand. that was the yeah. first game I ever played on the Apple II because we had an Apple IIe clone when I was a kid that my dad built himself. He was an electronics engineer. He like got us, uh, bought a like a bootleg board, and bought the chips nice. and assembled it and got some copies of the ROMs or whatever. Nice. We had that and. Man, it was a cool game, and I just set that up on my Apple IIc Plus a few months ago, and I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old, and the four-year-old daughter was just playing it like crazy. She did great on it. Awesome. <laughs> could, she, could she beat the... Yeah, she the got really guy. far. I can't believe it. She got Gosh, way farther than I could. Did she get the birds? <laughs> yeah, I, she got really far. I don't know. 
And there's there's a dog at the end, isn't there? That I never got weird. that far. Oh, yeah. dog, man. I'm pretty sure. So yeah, there's a bunch of categories of mooks and there's the birds. And then I think once you get near the end, the boss has a dog that he sends out first that's really fast. Wow. Jeez. Yeah, I've never <laughs> seen that, but it sounds terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've only played it on Game Boy, and I was not very good at that version. Yeah. Mm. It's cool on Apple, too. The music is neat. Yeah, and it really has some of the. I mean, because probably. In, <laughs> I mean, probably in large part thanks to the to the sort of pseudo rotoscoping it does. It has some of the most fluid animation yep. of anything that you see on that on that machine. Yeah, that was a technical just, achievement, definitely. Yeah, and I, I mentioned earlier that um, that game's follow up, Prince of Persia, uh, began life on Apple II. Also, it was really pretty much the last big game for Apple II coming mm-hmm. out in 1989. By that point, you know, Sega Genesis was out in America, so people had had moved on beyond the Apple II, but that is where Prince of Persia started, and it ended up on basically every system under the sun. Uh, But it was, you know, kind of that that sign that Apple II continued to be influential and and an important place for game development for so long. Um, What year did Ultima IV come out? That was 85. Mm -hmm. 85. That's that's another one that was... Considered a very important influential game which is the first rpg where you're not just trying to kill everybody but right. you have a moral dilemma and mm-hmm. all that and that originated on the apple too mm-hmm. so there you go and let's see 86 we had uh, another one of our personal computer lab popular ones was spy hunter which i was just reading up apparently was originally supposed to be a james bond game yeah the guy who the guy who programmed it was listening to james bond soundtracks and and did this game but they couldn't actually get the license so, yeah. so, so they got the peter gun peter gun theme instead yeah. <laughs> right I think I remember hearing that too. Yep. Yeah, I think beyond this point, you you get to games that are on Apple, but were probably developed simultaneously across the 664, yeah. Atari 800, yeah. Amiga, and the and PC. Pretty sure, pretty sure that, that was. Oh, yeah, and IBM yeah. DOS also. IBM PC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, by that point, the, the market had really diversified, and the Apple II was kind of on the way out, but it was still getting these games, like as simultaneous releases. It was still a platform that people owned and that developers wanted to publish on now let's talk about the oregon trail then okay so that's sure. 85 right so yeah 85, i mean yeah. that game has a, a long long history this was definitely not the first version of mm-hmm. oregon trail but, but it was the most impactful probably for our generation uh, yeah I, I would say yeah. so ended up ended up in everyone's school on this yeah, version we, yeah. yeah we did an episode uh, entirely on MECC. Oh wow! Uh, that cool. was that was several years ago. So if you're listening at home, go check that one out. Mm-hmm. But yeah, please uh, share your experiences. I, I never really played out Oregon Trail much, but I know my, uh, it is a it is a precious part of many people's childhoods. At my elementary school, we had a computer lab for our school, and it was full of Apple IIe's. I think, and um, we go in there sometimes uh, once a month or something and do logo or something mm-hmm. like that or and when we were done with our logo lesson we could play the Oregon Trail so it, we would team up like we had partners two per computer because there weren't enough computers for everybody and me and somebody else would um, try to make it all the way through and it just seemed like such a huge epic adventure because you know as a kid your mind fills in all the blanks mm-hmm. and you just have an incredible imagination so um, it was yeah. amazing but, and there was a lot of real history in it because it was developed by, like Jeremy mm-hmm. said, Mac, which was the uh, Minnesota uh, Educational, Educational Computer Consortium, something like that. Yeah, and so so you know they had an actual historian working on this to to put in things that you would have actually run into at that time and in, in that in those places. Um, and I think and this was the part of the vector I think that got all these Apple IIs into so many 
school computer labs was that there were these these educational these things that could capture kids attention but were also had real educational content in them uh for this platform and so i think that helps yeah i get these things in i can't remember where i read about it but sometime last year i was reading i think a book that was talking about the origins of oh it's a maybe i wonder if it's been published actually it was a a book that i um read before release you weren't supposed to mention it what's that (laughs) you weren't supposed to mention it i don't know i think it's nda on that one is it out now i don't know i don't know there's some people have covered i I want to say it was a david craddock book so it's probably out oh Um, was it part of that series uh yeah i'm pretty sure that that was uh something david craddock put together a history of the apple ii uh Mm -hmm. and video games and the Oregon Trail actually started out as like a game produced on teletype mm-hmm. and mainframe thing. Like in the early seventies, there were like these really simple computers mm-hmm. and people would have to like input their text and then it would print out and they would look at it and yeah. be like, Oh, so that was our move. And then they have to figure out the next one. It was all text-based. Actually yeah, the yeah. strong, the iChig at the strong, which is up in Rochester, New York, just got a huge donation of Oregon Trail materials and mech stuff nice. from the original author and, they have like the source code and things like that. It's really neat. But one thing, the last thing about the Oregon Trail is I thought it was neat that you could put in the names of your family. Mm-hmm. And so we put in our <laughs> classmates and okay. somebody would die of um, yeah, yeah. tetanus or diphtheria or whatever. Dysentery. Yeah, dysentery. that's what it is. Dysentery. I like diphtheria, though. That's good. Yeah, diphtheria. Vaccines. Uh, yeah, so anyway, we need to wind down at this point. I know you guys have to go. Um but I was wondering if there were any final things you want to give a shout out to before we wrap up this uh, this Apple II episode of Retronauts. Number Munchers was cool. That yeah. was uh, very popular and influential at my schools. Um, education, big and educational. Pac-Man at the same yeah. Time. What more do you want? And there's Word Munchers, Professor Pac-Man, Word Munchers, and other things. Those were that was you know that era. The whole throughout the latter half of the 80s and the early 90s was carried on by mech making games for the educational market that lifespan there but it was influential obviously because lots thousands and thousands of kids played those games yeah so i think we've i think we've hit most of the ones that that we had in my little uh grade school lab and you know after i moved on uh Ended up with Labs with Macs after that, so that'll have to be a different show. Yeah, we definitely should do a Mac episode. But yeah, beyond this, a lot of the games you get, pretty much all the games you get are multi-platform. Things like Leisure Suit Larry, Maniac Mansion, Pool of Radiance. Uh, Those are all games, for the most part, Yeah, that that showed up on many, many platforms. So you can't really call them uniquely Apple II, but they did show up on Apple II. Like, this was a viable platform, an important place for game publishers and developers up through the end of the 80s and into the 90s. So that, that really speaks yep. highly to uh, the nature of the, the system and its success. And I think also a fine testament and a good way to end this episode out is to point out the fact that even though Apple produced its final system update for uh, the Apple II and for the Apple II in 1993, it actually received a new version of ProDOS, ProDOS 2.4. Mm-hmm. Late last year. Right. Yeah, it received a uh, a final system update, or maybe not final. Maybe there will be another one. Uh, but yeah, in 2016, a guy named John Brooks put together mm-hmm. ProDOS 2.4. Yeah, I have no idea what that adds. I Can you like have use run Twitter it. or something? No, I've <laughs> run it on the, my 2C Plus right when it came out. Um, it 
it, it fixes some bugs, but it also adds a neat little sort of menu launcher system where you can sort of use your cursor keys to scroll through a file system easily without typing commands. That's really neat. It's the Apple II has a huge following. Um, you know, every year there's Kansas Fest, which happens in Kansas City, um, where a, a small group, I say huge, but, you know, as far as old computers go, it's very dedicated. A uh, small group gets together every year and they do Apple II stuff and somebody just programmed a new programming language for it and they're still developing games for it and it's just incredible. It lives yeah. on forever. Apple II forever, that's what they say. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it certainly seems to be that way. And I, I think it's a testament to the quality of the, the platform that many of those old computers still work, you know, 40, yeah. 30, 40 years later. Uh, you still said, you know, your daughter was playing Karateka, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Compared to Macs, they work great. The Macs have bad capacitors and breaking plastic, you know, all kinds of problems. <laughs> well, now they're made of metal. Yeah. By God. Don't, don't. And they're not going to work either in like 10 years. <laughs> oh, well. So it goes. I'll just buy a new one. That's that's the plan. The planned obsolescence. Mm-hmm. That's how it's built these days. Anyway, so that wraps it up for the Apple II and for the debut episode of Retronauts East. Retronauts East, 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 East. So, guys, thanks for coming in, taking time out of your afternoon. You're welcome. uh, Talking about Apple. It's my pleasure. Exactly. And we'll try to do this once a month and talk about cool things that maybe wouldn't get picked up at the normal Retronaut sessions. So, for Retronauts, this is Jeremy Parrish. You can find me at Retronauts.com because that's where I work now. Uh, I'm on Twitter as GameSpite. Retronauts, of course, is supported through Patreon, patreon.com slash retronauts, and the video section, uh, patreon.com slash gamespite. Two ways to help us make video content or content, retro gaming content, yes. Uh, Anyway, that's enough about me, Benj. And don't forget, patreon.com slash Benj Edwards to support. And where would we find you on Twitter? Uh, Facebook at Binge Edwards. I don't use Facebook. Oh. Um, VintageComputing.com. Very good. Ben? And I don't have a lot of presence right now. I'm on Twitter as uh, Kieran, K-I-R-I-N-N. Uh, if I ever get my stuff together enough to make some games, I'll be sure to let you all know, but don't have anything really up right now. So. All right. Thanks again, guys, and thanks everyone for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Sorry if there are audio problems. The next episode will sound better, I promise. And we'll be back in one more week with a full episode, I think, hosted by Bob. So look forward to that. Thanks again. Bye.